Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Zero Tolerance. We speak to a Maple Ridge City Councilor who wants to restrict open drug use in city parks and public places. Plus, Me Too, please, with the government promising $150 million from provincial taxpayers to help Surrey with its police transition. Other communities are now wanting financial help, too. And the paper cup fee comes to an end in Vancouver. But why is there still a bag fee? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Focus on decriminalization of drugs. Now, as you know, uh, our province uh, began a pilot project to decriminalize the possession of two and a half grams of hard drugs uh, in British Columbia. Now, across the province, many municipalities have been concerned about how this will impact their community. Now, a Maple Ridge City Councillor is is, uh, proposing a new bylaw to ban open drug use in city parks and places where people gather. Councillor Ahmed Yusuf wants to restrict the consumption of controlled substances at city facilities like parks or on high ways, public spaces. Uh, He wants that all prohibited just as public consumption of alcohol and smoking is prohibited. Uh, Many other communities have been looking at this as well. Recently, there have been motions, similar motions in Kamloops and Campbell River and Sycamus as well. Councillor Ahmed Yusuf joins us now. First question to you is, why do you think this is needed in Maple Ridge? I believe this is needed in Maple Ridge and specifically the way I worded it was to address open drug use in city parks and outdoor gathering spaces because this is, these are the spaces that our children and youth are frequenting the most. And as we know, uh, children and youth tend to model behaviors that they see. Normalizing this behavior uh, and exposing them to hypodermic needles and glass pipes does not bode well for our futures as guardians and stewards of future generations Mm -hmm. for their safety and ours. I believe it's pertinent that we do our part and as a municipal government, uh, we only have control over our city parks and some of our outdoor gathering spaces where we can uh, enact a bylaw to to prohibit this kind of behavior. Having personally uh, visited some of our supportive housing facilities one week ago today with the mayor and and most of our council members and seeing the difficulties uh, uh, that come from a life of using hard drugs and and the hard life Mm -hmm. that people are currently living and have been exposed to over years and are really working hard to try to overcome, I honestly cannot live with myself knowing that members of my community and and possibly some of my loved ones will be exposed to this and may end up falling into the grips of addiction. And uh, I I try to do my part. uh, And as you said, we have bylaws already in place prohibiting tobacco, alcohol, and cannabis use, but yet hard drugs that are severely addictive and have a detrimental effect on individuals' lives are not. What impact, if any, do you think this would have? I mean, I, I realize you don't want to see the use of of hard drugs, but the people who are using these hard drugs out on the streets are, have, have deep challenges with in regards to addiction, mental health challenges as well. It, it would a bylaw like this make a difference when these individuals have much tougher um, challenges before them that they're not going to worry about some city bylaw? You know, uh, we eat the elephant one bite at a, at a time. And as a municipal government, this falls within our purview. I hope to also send a signal to the provincial government Hmm. to start addressing 
the the core causes of these addiction issues and start really putting some funding behind treatment centers and helping people better their lives. As you've mentioned, there have been communities around the province that were recently demonstrating and saying enough is enough. We're seeing quite a significant uptake in open drug use since the decriminalization. I personally don't believe it's working in anyone's favor. It's actually gone in the opposite direction. And again, my main focus with this motion is predominantly for the next generation, for children and teenagers and youth that would otherwise be exposed to this, trying to mitigate those risks from them falling into it or seeing this as something that should be normalized and accepted. Uh, it's, it's simply not. We don't accept tobacco and, and alcohol consumption. Why would we accept hard drugs? So I want to touch on a little bit, you're saying the, the pilot project, which I refer to it as a pilot project, now it's running uh, from January 2023 to January 2026. The police will not make an arrest or seize the drugs um, if people have, if they possess up to two and a half grams of uh, illegal drugs. Now, for personal use, so that could be heroin, uh, morphine, fentanyl, crack and powder cocaine, uh, and methamphetamines. Uh, in your community, since the pilot project came in, um, in it was brought in January 31st of, of this year, you're seeing you're saying it's gotten worse in your community in regards to open use of uh, of hard drugs in public places, so kids can see it, other citizens can see it as well. Absolutely, um, you know it's it's so rampant uh, that not just myself as a parent, but other parents around the community are complaining about their inability to allow their children to play at a park. Our daycare and child care centers have to inform and train their staff to go out and do sweeps of playgrounds uh, to ensure that they're safe and clean. Uh, teenagers themselves, you know, 10-year-olds, even up to teenagers that are not being allowed by their parents to uh, go to certain parts of town as a result of this open drug use. Uh, it's still early on enough that we don't have the actual data and the numbers to, to support it, but anecdotally, you speak to anyone and they will tell you they've seen quite an increase in, in drug use and, and you know in drug-related behaviors as well. And this is what my motion speaks to. I'm not uh, you know, opposed to any particular person or any category of persons. I'm addressing behaviors and behaviors that I certainly hope that we can all agree are not good for our children and are used to be exposed to and to be normalized and desensitized to. Christine in Maple Ridge. Hi, Christine. Hi, Jazz. Thank you for taking my call. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for calling. What's on your mind? Uh, what is on my mind is uh, if <laughs> Councillor Yosef would like to uh, prohibit the use of illegal drugs in our parks and public spaces, perhaps he should be advocating for the establishment of a safe consumption site in our community. This is something I've been advocating for in Maple Ridge for years. Um, the three supportive housing buildings that we have in Maple Ridge do have safe consumption sites. However, they're only available for the residents of those uh, buildings. Hmm. So folks that live on our streets have no choice but to use outside or in 
washrooms of restaurants and uh, gas stations, you know, and um, quite frankly, if they don't have a place inside to use, I would much rather see them using outside with a friend who can witness their use and make sure they stay safe. Councillor uh, Yusuf, your thoughts on uh, from Christine's comments about the real issue here is a safe consumption area. And as she said, perhaps it's better that they do it in the open so they can be safe, hopefully with a friend. And, and if there is an emergency, somebody would be around to help. What are your thoughts on those those comments? Well, uh, thank you, and, and to Ms. Bosley as well for the question. My concern with that is that, one, our community has, uh, over the years, mm-hmm. stood against uh, a safe consumption site being established in Maple Ridge. Uh, as a representative of the majority, uh, we live in a democracy. I would like to abide by and oblige the constituents and the community at large Uh, i'm not opposed to advocating to the province to allow the already existing uh, safe consumption sites that are within the three facilities that uh, quite frankly dot our downtown core to be open for the public however the establishment of an additional and only uh, safe injection site has not really, uh, shall we say, worked or been successful in the past. It tends to become a gathering space where now the dealers know where to go. They can target the users much more uh, precisely. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, as we said, this is something that having seen the effects of these hard drugs on people's lives, uh, physically and mentally and and overall, uh, it's not something that I would want to encourage or to have people further uh, being enabled to consume. Quite the contrary, as I mentioned earlier, I, I would very much advocate for the province to start funding treatment options and treatment centers and provide us with the on-demand treatment that is desperately needed so we can save people from the grips of addiction, get their lives back on track, and help them to have a full and happy and, 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 and fulfilling life ahead of them, rather than continuing the vicious cycle of addiction. All right, well, let's go to Ron in Surrey. Hi, Ron. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Your thoughts? Well, my thoughts is what becomes permissible becomes acceptable, and I don't know what kind of example we're showing our, our youth that it's permissible to do drugs in public because a lot of times the people that are using them don't dispose of their needles properly. Mm-hmm. And, you, and if they're doing it in a public park, you have kids that can get pricked by it. And, you know, the idea of safe consumption, that's so uh, that's an oxymoron. There's no real safe consumption because these guys are getting narcan all the time. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with the counselor that we basically the fourth pillar needs to be looked at. Not all this other pillars, but the fourth pillar, which is treatment. So we need to fund treatment, detox and treatment. And when they're, and when they're ready, it should be available. Ron, thanks for your call. I think you hit on hit hit, hit the nail on the head. There is a con, there is a compassion fatigue out there. I think people want to help, and treatment centers exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and people do get a little tired of you giving up your streets. Uh, and I think Councillor uh, Yusuf raised a very good point. If you're out and about with your family, grocery shopping, out and about, you don't want your kids to be looking at people doing hard drugs. It's very simple. It's simple as that. Uh, let's go to Tina in Delta. Hi, Tina. Hello. Hi, what's on your mind? Yeah, thank you for taking my call. I agree with the counselor very much. 
I strongly oppose. Even to start with a safe injection site, before we didn't have that, we, we didn't have this problem. They opened this safe injection site, so it allowed many people to get in and do drugs. And now we have a big problem. And what I see is the counselors and our um, managers or the, some of the doctors and all these, they come up with solution that is a problem. Mm -hmm. So they, they, they solve a problem with a problem. So now we are getting all these young people who are supposed to be in the system, to be a good citizen, work, support themselves, and pay taxes to support the society. Now they are mentally sick. Tina, thanks for your call. Appreciate it. Uh, Council Yusuf, I've got about 30 seconds left here. Uh, when does your motion go before City Hall? Uh, so it'll be coming to mayor and council for consideration and vote not Tuesday tomorrow, but a week from now. And uh, and when other municipalities have looked at this, have they mostly passed this this type of law, bylaw similar to what you're what you're suggesting in other communities? Uh, so having had uh, quite a, a, an extensive conversation with the mayor of Kamloops as he was attempting to do something similar, uh, we kind of sharpened uh, one another's tool by considering those spaces that are within the purview of municipal government rather than a complete citywide ban, which would not qualify, of course, under the current uh, regime with the 2.5 grams of decriminalization, focusing on city parks and outdoor ga public gathering spaces that are owned and operated and managed by the city is where that sweet spot that is within our control. And of course, again, I hope that this is uh, a sign for the provincial government that uh, we need their assistance. We need them to shift gears away from uh, the current program and start funding more treatment and really help us get our brothers and sisters off the street, out of the grips of addiction, and back into a good life. Councillor Yusuf, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. You may recall last fall, the BC government uh, amended the Strata Property Act uh, to end rental restriction bylaws uh, and uh, other bylaws that uh, can limit uh, rentals based on uh, age restrictions as well. Uh, but what you saw in, in some cases uh, where some of these uh, strata properties moved to become 55 plus, and you were actually hearing stories in the news where uh, people who were um, having kids were, have, were forced or would, be, have been, would have been forced to move out of their strata. Well, today uh, the government made some changes, and joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, changes to the strata property regulations is Ravi Kalon, the Minister of Housing. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hey, Giles. Thanks for having me. So walk me through, what will the changes look like as of today? Well, certainly, Josh, you've laid out the challenge. I mean, uh, you know, having uh, kids is an exciting time, and, and the last thing you need is uh, the stress of being worried about whether your place is still yours after you have a kid. And the changes we've made with this uh, change in regulation allow for any strata corp that changes the rules to 55-plus, uh, that any individual that lives in it, if they're having children, the children automatically uh, can stay 
in, in the building. Uh, this doesn't happen often, as you've highlighted. It, mm-hmm. it happens rarely. But when it does happen, it has real impacts on those families. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you already live in a property, uh, the fact that you're a young family, you decide to have, have, have uh, children, uh, you'll be grandfathered in. That's correct, yeah. So uh, we had about 230 uh, strata buildings out of 34,000 in the province that decided to move to 55 plus. And, you know, uh, part of the changes uh, meant that some families who were younger uh, got caught up in that 55 plus. And so those are the families that are most impacted from this change. And so now if they're having a kid, you know, obviously they're grandfathered in automatically, but it also means that if you're over 55 and you're in, an, in one of these buildings, if you have a, a young person, whether it's, you know, your, your, your child or your children or your grandson and your or granddaughter, they can move in with you as a caregiver and you don't need to have special permission. Because we've heard from seniors also that, hey, the building's 55 plus, which is great. I'm getting older. I need somebody to help me. Uh, and uh, the rules don't allow it. So this helps both young families, but it also helps some seniors who need that additional support. So when, when somebody deems a property 55 plus, can, they can't shut out renters though, can they? No, they cannot. And, uh, and that's why the changes we made last fall were so important because, you know, we have, we have thousands of units that uh, apply for uh, exemption from the, the, vaca- the, uh, the uh, vacancy tax right now. They, they say we can't rent them because our building won't allow us to rent them. And so the changes we made unlocked all those units for rent. Now, some buildings moved to 55 plus, which the seniors advocate urged us to leave in place. But it's important to note that they, that means that the buildings are now available for rent for pe- people 55 plus. And we know there's a lot of people in that category as well. And, and what is the reasoning for 55 plus buildings? Is it just because of a different environment uh, that, that we allow it uh, here in British Columbia? Yeah, the seniors advocate uh, urged us to uh, leave that uh, piece in. I mean, that's not a new thing. That's always existed here. Mm-hmm. But the seniors advocate felt uh, strongly that we need to leave that place in because some buildings have additional supports that they can provide seniors because it's targeted to 55 plus so that agencies and outside organizations can bring additional supports to uh, support an older population with that 55 plus they're able to do so uh, so we we of course uh, listen to the seniors advocate but what we didn't want and what we didn't want to see is have some buildings move to 55 plus and make it more challenging for for the residents that already live there mm-hmm. uh, and you may have mentioned this earlier but i just want to clarify when you changed those rules last fall uh how many rental units came onto the market or could potentially come onto the market because of that rule change I believe the exact number from the vacancy tax was just under around a thousand mm-hmm. uh, units. So a thousand units claim that uh, they couldn't pay the vacancy tax. They had their units completely empty, but they couldn't pay the tax because their building wouldn't allow them. Now we know that it's probably higher than that because we know there's people who had uh, lived in a unit, but they couldn't rent it to uh, uh, an extra room to a friend or to somebody else because of rules that were in place not allowing rental. So uh, I know, for example, a student that I recently met was in a three-bedroom suite uh, and now was renting the other two bedrooms out to uh, fellow classmates, and they all live together. So it's, it's actually having an impact. And, 
you know, the cost of bringing, let's say, a thousand units online, mm-hmm. uh, if we were to build them now, is just huge. And in a housing crisis, we have to ensure that every unit is made available. Mm-hmm. Uh, just one final question here, and it's off topic. Uh, it is on housing, but a bit off topic in regards to strata, uh, strata regulations. But uh, I know the government had promised a, a naughty and nice list of municipalities who are following the rules and others who need to be encouraged to build more housing. Uh, when can we expect that? Uh, this spring, Joss, uh, and, and for those that are listening, it's the um, ho- Housing Supply Act, which allows us to choose 8 to 10 communities, uh, and with that, putting on some targets for them to meet. And if a community doesn't meet those targets, then the province has the ability to, to step in and make some decisions. Again, housing crisis that we're in now, we need uh, action. And uh, we'll be announcing those 8 to 10 communities and, and kind of the timelines for them on how they got to make decisions. Uh, this spring. So it's literally weeks away. We are not far away. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to being able to share that, but not only share the communities, but we're going to share the data on how we made decisions on which communities. And we'll share a list of those that are close, but didn't make the list because our goal is to not only, uh, you know, have the communities where the needs are uh, step up and do more, but we want to make sure that everybody in between understands that they have more to do too. Minister, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me, Josh. Stay safe. We had a busy show uh, on Friday. As um, many of you are aware, uh, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth announced that uh, the province was recommending Surrey uh, transition towards a Surrey police service and that the province would be willing to put up $150 million over the next five years to help with the transition costs. And by uh, the province, I mean you, the taxpayer, not just Surrey taxpayers, but all BC taxpayers. And that money uh, was not there uh, before. Now, I did speak to Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth that day about his announcement. One of the questions I did ask him was specific to the dollars. And I asked him, are you concerned that uh, that this may set a precedent with other municipalities asking for money if they have policing challenges or want to spend money on the purchase of vehicles, buildings, capital costs for policing or a transition themselves? Does this not set a precedent? Take a listen to his response. No, I'm, I'm not concerned about that, uh, this being a precedent. The situation in Surrey is unique. It is far and away the largest detachment uh, in the country. Uh, the transition was already uh, well underway as to when Surrey decided uh, to go back. Um, I've had no indication from other municipalities. I mean, there is a process that if they wanted to follow, they could. Uh, but uh, the, this is not a precedent um, that the province will be having up money. This is a recognition of a very complex issue that has been ongoing for four years that we need to get resolved to ensure uh, stability and safety in policing, in, not only in Surrey, mm-hmm. but also the, uh, the rest of the province. That was Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth on Friday. Now, here we are Monday, and guess what? Eric Woodward, the, uh, the mayor of the township of Langley, was on my colleague Mike Smith's show talking about just that and reminding uh, the minister and reminding the, uh, all the, uh, the government itself in, uh, in Victoria that guess what? We need some of that money here. We're a fast-growing community. Take a listen to Mayor Eric Woodward. I want to hesitate. I, I'm not, it's not sort of hitting and putting my hand out. It's like, uh, well, where's the equity here? So, you know, I yeah. need a new police station. I need all kinds of infrastructure for policing. I'm growing at uh, the fastest growing municipality in Metro Vancouver by percentage. You know, we're doing our part for the housing supply uh, crisis that the Premier and I agree on. Uh, but, you know, do I get a new police station just because I create some drama? 
That was uh, Eric Woodward, the mayor of the township of Langley, speaking to the street drama. Now, he's not the only one. Uh, Paul Minhas is a councillor in New Westminster. He also says his community could use a few dollars to help them uh, deal with the policing in their community, and he joins us now. Mr. Minhas, thank you for speaking to us today. Good afternoon, Jazz. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon. So why does New Westminster need money for its policing challenges? Um, you know, uh, our city is growing uh, also at a rapid rate, and it is important that uh, our police department doesn't fall behind. Uh, and with all the challenges that our city has and the police department has, uh, it would be nice to have some of that money um, that is being funded to the city of uh, Surrey. Uh, we would like to love to have it over here as well, too. If you were offered such money, where would it go specifically? Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, all the police forces are funded through the municipal tax dollars. uh, And we're all facing the same kind of challenges as far as inflation, high interest rates and everything else. And the taxes keep increasing in double digits, you know, and uh, definitely uh, these would go to increase police patrols, uh, recruit, retrain retain officers, uh, you know, as well as help fund outreach and crime prevention programs. Uh, of course, the police board and the police department would be dealing with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think this is ultimately a mistake on the part of Victoria to offer these dollars to Surrey? Now, and some would argue, look, New Westminster is growing, and I understand that. But Surrey is a community of 600,000 plus uh, and grows by 1,000 to 1,500 residents per month. It is going to pass Vancouver as the largest municipality uh, in this uh, region, largest in, in, in British Columbia, very quickly. What do you say to the argument that this is very unique? This is Surrey-specific. It is a very unique community and is growing faster uh, than most, and they should be be given a few dollars to make this huge transition. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the city of Surrey is growing, but so is our city as well, too. And uh, while uh, the city of Surrey is growing, we have also lost about 15 officers, from what I can uh, recall from the last report that we received, that I received, uh, to Surrey. And we need to uh, also be able to recruit officers. Uh, and, and, you know, it's important that we cannot forget or the province shouldn't forget the other police forces and the challenges that they meet and have on a regular basis as well. You have a municipal police force. Do you know uh, if, if, if your uh, police force has lost members or even potential recruits to Surrey? And recruits potentially saying, look, I want to join the U.S. and then change their, last minute, their mind at the last minute and join Surrey or actual members of the U.S. Police Department deciding, you know what, I'm going to join the SPS. Have you lost any members to the SPS? Yes, definitely. In the last year, we have lost 15 members. And it's a possibility. Sorry, those are all. Might... To, those are all to SPS. I just want to clarify. Oh, you, New Westminster has lost fifteen police officers to SPS. That's right. That's right. And it's a possibility in the future we might lose more. Uh, and uh, you know these are uh, very big challenges for a small city that's growing quite rapidly in the Lower Mainland, especially being in the center of the of of the Metro Vancouver area. Um, and and our challenges are very very unique in in our own ways here. Um, what happens next? I mean, can you and uh, your fellow councillors there or other uh, councillors around the Lower Mainland, do you think there will be a greater push for some for more dollars for policing in the Lower Mainland then? Well, I'm hoping so. Uh, I'm hoping uh, Minister Farnworth uh, will. Uh, I mean, the way we look at it or the way I'm looking at it, where is the equity? 
if we talk about the equity lens, mm-hmm. um, uh, where, uh, I mean, how are we being fair to the other uh, police departments throughout the Metro Vancouver? We all desperate. We all need money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, these um, are men and women in blue. They put their lives on the line. They're first responders. And there's a huge cost figure to this. They're the first ones to respond for every call that they receive. And, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's a challenge that we all face. And I believe it's important that Minister Farnworth also address the rest of the municipalities that do have the police force. Uh, Mr. Minhas, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Jazz. Now, you may recall um, regarding Friday's uh, policing announcement from the government. It was a 500-page report. Mayor Brenda Locke uh, held a press conference after uh, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, and uh, she talked about the fact that uh, uh, she was disappointed. Uh, she felt that um, you know she, they were the city itself, or at least the council, were being pushed in a in a direction the government wanted, which was the support of SPS. Um, you may recall Brenda Locke also talking about that within the report. There are a lot of redacted pages. Some of those questions came up in today's question period, where um, the opposition, BC United opposition, challenged the government on the 150 million dollars that was offered, and the fact that some parts of the report were redacted because Ms. Locke complained about it on. Friday. Take a listen. The redactions are because they are arts, they are RCMP confidential information that relate to the staffing strengths of various detachments around the province. And as Solicitor General, I am not authorized to release that information. And more importantly, Honourable Speaker, I, I would like to think, I would like to think that at least the opposition would want, would want to make sure that confidential information such as that should remain that way, and you don't give that information to the criminals, Honourable Speaker. That was Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, a, a rather um, a very um, rambunctious debate today in question period in regards to Surrey. It was a local issue, it was a municipal issue, and now it looks like with $150 million being offered, it's a provincial issue as well. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the politics of all of this is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Josh. Thanks for having me. Is the uh, provincial government nervous about this whole Surrey policing issue after Friday's announcement? I mean, or were they happy with the way things transpired? Yeah, I think there's some nerves. And you could see that today when uh, Premier David Eby stopped to speak with reporters before question period. It is rare that the Premier scrums nowadays. He has events. Uh, you ask him questions at those events. You get limited access to the Premier because uh, he is a very busy guy. Uh, but today, uh, we were told that the Premier was going to make himself available uh, before heading into question period to answer any, any, any unanswered questions on Surrey policing. We hadn't heard from the Premier on this issue yet. Uh, we now know he has an event tomorrow, but clearly wanted to get some things off his chest today. So mm-hmm. clearly they're a little bit worried about how this is going. What we learned from the Premier was that they are currently working to arrange uh, a meeting with uh, staff and the mayor in Surrey to provide them the entire report, the unredacted version of it, so they can get a full sense of the situation here. Uh, They are privy to the information around policing levels. The public is not, so they'll get that full briefing. And then the premier also anticipates having a meeting soon with the mayor herself, along with Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, to have conversations around uh, that transition to the Surrey Police Service. And so 
clearly the province is aware of some of the reactions here and the frustration the mayor felt, uh, and they're trying to make good on all of that considering those concerns they've heard. What if Ms. Locke ignores the report and says, you know what? We're going to stick with the RCMP. As we said, we're going to stick with the RCMP. We have a budget. We've already approved that budget. I'm not going to worry about this. I'm not providing any more funding to SPS. They can just sit there with their 400 members, but we are going to stick with our plan. What would happen? As the plan goes now, Jazz, the ministry, the the public safety minister has determined that a transition to the RCMP is currently laid out is not safe. It will not ensure public safety. So unless the city comes back with a plan that addresses those conditions that were laid out on Friday, including uh, ramping up RCMP staffing without poaching from other RCMP detachments, then ultimately the public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, will say, you can't proceed with staying with the RCMP. That, But we don't know at what point he'll make that determination. Uh, we just know that if it's not met uh then that determination will be made. So there's politics involved there as well. And the other piece of all of this, I mentioned that they're not allowed to poach from other RCMP detachments. Mm -hmm. There's nothing stopping the Surrey Police Service from poaching from other detachments. That's going to lead to pressure in other municipalities. And this is where it goes from just a Surrey issue, as you mentioned, to a province-wide issue. And those other jurisdictions, Abbotsford, Delta, Vancouver... They're not getting this money from the provincial government, but they may be losing officers here. And at that point, the premier, public safety minister, government's going to have a problem on their hands because they're going to hear from those municipalities. They're going to hear from those police forces. They're going to hear from those mayors saying, well, this isn't fair. We're losing our officers. What I understand is previously the transition to Surrey police was going well. There was equal distribution in terms of where officers were coming from. But now that there seems to be extra pressure here to staff up, and we're seeing retirements, we're seeing all of this happen, you know, all bets are off here, and we could see some pushback from some of these municipalities that may end up losing some of their officers to Surrey. Well, I think uh, the pushback is already was uh, 15 minutes ago on this show, 20 minutes ago. Uh, Paul Minas, the um, city councilor from New Westminster, he told me they lost 15 um, members to SPS. Uh, and yeah. they're also saying, where are the dollars for recruitment right. uh, and um, new uh, offices and all that sort of thing? So I think the pushback is already occurring. And I want to play a, a clip for you uh, that we played in the last um, last segment. It's from Eric Woodward, the mayor of the township of Langley. He was on with Mike Smith earlier today. Take a listen to his comments to the $150 million that Mike Farnworth has offered to Surrey. I want to hesitate. I, I'm not, it's not sort of hitting and putting my hand out. It's like, uh, well, where's the equity here? So, you know, I yeah. need a new police station. I need all kinds of infrastructure for policing. I'm growing at uh, the fastest growing municipality in Metro Vancouver by percentage. You know, we're doing our part for the housing supply uh, crisis that the premier and I agree on. Uh, but, you know, do I get a new police station just because I create some drama? <laughs> that pretty much shows how people are kind of tired in other municipalities, probably citizens as well. And I think it, it, there is a, I think the government itself, Mr. Farmer, they're going to have to tread lightly here because I think there's little patience for, for all this money that's being directed towards Surrey. Yeah, and part of it is, as the mayor described there, the drama that has become Surrey. And we know it's a municipality that loves drama, Jazz, but this has been especially problematic considering 
promise made by Doug McCallum, promise kept with very little information for the public, a realization that this is going to cost a lot more than anyone uh, was expecting. We have a new mayor that comes in and Brenda Locke decides to reverse that decision. And now the province is in essence stepping in and saying, okay, you guys did not give the public enough information here. We need to help you to ensure that there is not this push towards the taxpayer where they are forced to pay these huge costs associated not just with severances for Surrey Police Service, but with those additional costs that operating Surrey Police will cost. Funding one side and not the other, though, is going to be an issue. And that was one of the dominating themes in question period as well. And we will keep seeing those mayors and councillors stand up and say, you know, why not me? So there is going to be a problem on the hands of the province. They're just going to have to try to figure out their way through it. But the first hurdle they need to clear in all of this jazz is to convince Brenda Locke and her councillors that the right option here is a Surrey Police Service, because if they can't clear that hurdle, then they're going to have all sorts of other problems ensuring the public safety is kept in Metro Vancouver. It'll be interesting, that's for sure. Richard, thank you. My pleasure, Josh. Thank you. You may recall uh, in early April uh, when the city of Vancouver and the Vancouver uh, Police Department shut down parts of Hastings Street and cleared out tents um, uh, and, uh, you know, they were belonging to about uh, 80 people who were encamped on the sidewalk. Now, during uh, the height of that tent city last summer, there were about 180 tents. And many have said, it was it the right thing to do? Particularly, where would these people go? Well, Kareem Alam is a partner at Fairview Strategy and the former chief of staff with the city of Vancouver. He was concerned in regards to the removal of these individuals and, and where they would go. I want to talk to him a little bit about that. He made some comments recently about uh, that decampment and I thought it's time we caught up with him in regards to what should be done. Kareem Alam, as I said, is a partner of Fairview Strategy and a former chief of staff for the city of Vancouver. He joins us now. Kareem, thank you for speaking to us. Thanks for having me, Josh. So your thoughts on this decampment that uh, that occurred in early April, uh, a lot um, had occurred at that time, a very busy day. In fact, we're going to play a a quick soundbite here in regards to some of the things people were saying when it was occurring. Take a listen. Decampment on Hastings. Not everyone is willing to pack up and move. City crews supported by the VPD, exercising restraint and compassion during a difficult task. I saw that. That's why I took it up, put it in the cream one for you. The city says this process will repeat. You guys want to keep the business, you want to store them. In order to keep the sidewalks clear of new tents and structures, as per the fire chief's order. That was a report uh, that aired um, in early April as that decampment was going on. Uh, Kareem, your thoughts first and foremost. I mean, there's a lot of people demanding uh, that those that tent city be cleared. Do you think the city handled it the right way? I think everyone's in agreement that living in tents on the sidewalk is not appropriate uh, housing for anybody. And uh, uh, the decampment uh, wasn't the issue. The issue was uh, where would we move these people after we decamp them? Uh, We knew that 120 modular housing units had been uh, approved by the city of Vancouver and the province of British Columbia. Uh, They were supposed to come online in March. It got delayed for a bunch of permitting reasons uh, and were coming online in May. So was it the right decision to decamp uh, in March, knowing that those units were going to be ready in May? What's happened as a result is 
as these people have been dislocated from the decampment, uh, uh, a lot of these people have shown up in Yaletown, Granville uh, Street, in different parts of the downtown peninsula. So while, quote-unquote, cosmetically, the downtown east side looks better, uh, all we've done is shift these people around and separated from the day-to-day services uh, that they've been getting uh, when they were there on the downtown east side. So um, while the downtown east side, again, and Chinatown look a lot better, uh, Yaletown and other neighborhoods in the downtown peninsula have gotten worse. So we actually haven't made any progress or any real progress on this issue. Why do you think um, the city ultimately decided to do this then? I mean, I know there's pressure from certain, from the public, I'm sure. The, they've said it's a safety issue as well. Um, what do you think ultimately convinced the city that we have to move now, even though, as you say, there was no housing for these people to go to? Uh, we know that there was a fire uh, order that needed to be enforced. Uh, we know that the VPD had concerns uh, uh, with an accumulation of weapons and in, 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 in firearms. Um, but even though the decampment has occurred, uh, those weapons and firearms are still there. And uh, have we actually made progress on the fire order? I'm not sure if you're a resident of Yaletown that you would agree that things are safer in that neighborhood. So, again... I feel that we've just shifted this problem from one neighborhood in the downtown peninsula to other neighborhoods in the downtown peninsula. So is it fair to say this was a mistake on the part of the city of Vancouver to do this? It's hard to say. Um, I wasn't around the table when uh, the information was being presented to to mayor and council. Um, uh, These these decisions require uh, a tremendous amount of study and, and, and forethought. So I wasn't there around the table. Uh, but from a purely healthcare perspective, ignoring the fire order and ignoring the advice from the VPD, um, dislocating these per- people from uh, uh, their health services, detox, recovery, supervised consumption, um, and pushing them out to other neighborhoods that don't have those, these services, uh, the healthcare outcomes uh, are going to get worse. Um, uh, uh, the housing is coming online in May. Um, uh, we certainly it certainly deserved maybe a little bit more uh, forethought uh, before we got into it. Can the city actually solve this, or do you think we need just greater greater dollars still from the provincial government and the federal government to, to, to deal with this? It's all well and good to have 120 modular housing units, but one would argue Vancouver's problems require significantly more than 120 units and, be, and a lot more resources as well in regards to dealing with mental health and addiction. You've hit the nail right on the head, uh, Jazz. The city's dramatically increased uh, the resources uh, to support those people on the downtown east side. The province has dramatically increased the resources to support people on the downtown east side. What we're waiting for is uh, the federal government to participate in a plan. This is a national problem that's manifesting itself on the roads of Vancouver. Uh, We know from the BC Not-for-Profit Housing Association that 50% of uh, uh, the homeless or the people experiencing homelessness in the downtown east side are not from British Columbia. Uh, So, yes, I do think it's incumbent that the feds start coming to the table uh, with more money um, to be able to support uh, the challenges that we're experiencing here. Kareem, thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot. Have a great day, Josh. Late last week, uh, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation uh, put out a report saying the average uh, home price uh, will not 
not uh, revert back to pre-pandemic levels in 2023. There's a variety of reasons for that. Lots going on in the real estate industry as well. You hear so many things in the mainstream media, on social media. I thought it was time to catch up uh, with a gentleman who is always very helpful to help us understand the housing market here in the Lower Mainland, especially Michael Geller, who's president of the Geller Group. He's an architect planner, and he's a real estate consultant uh, as well. Michael, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure. I hope I am helpful. Well, you are. We keep calling back. So I hope that's a sure sign. That's for sure. But uh, I want to touch base on this um, CMHC report uh, saying that the average house price will not revert back to pre-pandemic levels in 2023. Is that a case of just the market trying to find a bottom? I, you hear that. And then you also hear people saying, well, there's not enough inventory and there are multiple offers now happening in the market. What are you hearing? At the uh, beginning of the year, I wrote an article in the Vancouver Sun Mm -hmm. on what I thought might happen in the coming year. And uh, generally, I don't pretend to know what's going on, but I do like to listen to the other analysts. And the consensus in January of this year was that prices would, in fact, not achieve the levels of pre-pandemic. And there were a number of reasons given. Uh, One was the general economy. Another was the rising interest rates, which I think have generally leveled off at the moment. Another was construction costs and the overall economy. So it's no surprise what CMAC is suggesting is happening. It was predicted at the beginning of the year. So is this a case of a market still trying to find a bottom, like it's almost there, but it's just not sure when that might be, that we may be through the worst of it for the market by the end of this year then? I think so. And indeed, I mean, I go to lots of lunches and listen to analysts and people who know much more than I do. And I think the consensus is that the rise in interest rates is going to level up. We're not going to see another one, two or three percent for the balance of the year or increase for the balance of the year. But there are a number of factors that I see from my perspective within the industry that most people may not see. One of the things I see is that construction costs are continuing to rise. And so to some degree, that's obviously going to impact the cost of housing that's being built over the next couple of years. And again, interest rates, while I I don't think they'll necessarily rise, I, I don't think they're going to drop significantly back to the levels we were at just a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. The other thing is municipal fees are rising. The city of Vancouver just announced that it was increasing what they call the community amenity contributions. Jazz, many years ago, I bought a site in Carisdale for $80 a foot buildable. At the time, that was the highest price anyone had paid other than for one other site on Georgia Street. Today, the city is charging $115 a foot just for some of its fees if you want to develop on the Canby Corridor. My point being, you add in the higher construction costs, you add in these extra municipal fees, and uh, very quickly you realize house prices cannot drop dramatically, especially new construction and new housing. I I guess partially it's also that we're still having difficulty finding labor as well in many cases in, in, in the construction industry. I, when, when your producer called me uh, to invite me onto the show, I did do a little bit of research and I wrote out some notes and I wrote labor shortage, exclamation mark. <laughs> you know, people are predicting that we're going to try, Canada is predicting we're going to build 400,000 units or homes a year. 
I worked for CMHC in the 1970s, and I remember in those days we built 230, 240,000 homes a year, and until very recently, that was the most homes we could build. And the reality is that given the construction shortage of labor and to some degree uh, limitations on the supply of materials, it's getting more and more difficult and more and more expensive to build. I'm giving a talk this weekend at a housing conference in Kamloops uh, for people who are involved in the manufactured home industry. That That's the, if you like, the modular housing, the homes that uh, are built in factories. And I must admit, I, for, <laughs> for 40 years, I predicted that next year we're going to see a sudden increase in interest in modular factory-built housing. I really believe it might happen, Jazz, because there is a, a shortage of construction labor, and one way to address that is to build homes in factory. Mm-hmm. Well, it is a, it is an industry um, that I think is ripe for technical techn- technological disruption, um, and I'm I'm with you. I think it, we should be building some of these homes in factories, or at least uh, it, it would speed up the process to a certain degree. I think you're absolutely right, but it, 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 we haven't been able to sort of hit that that m- moment where uh, things tip. But hopefully, this may be this may be the moment. Uh, in regards to the broader conversation of greater density, uh, the missing middle, different types of housing. Um, do you think we're heading in the right direction in regards to, you know, thinking about where this housing will go, uh, approval of this housing in a, in a sort of a faster way? Are we heading in, in, in the right direction when it comes to that? No, I personally do think we're heading in the right direction because for years I've been promoting the idea that we should be building more duplexes and triplexes and duplexes with basement suites. Believe it or not, in many municipalities, you can have a basement suite in a house, but you can't have a basement suite in a duplex. That's silly. But I also agree with many of your listeners, because every time you and I discuss this, they phone up and say, yeah, but do we have the services? Do we have sufficient water and sewer and community centers and schools to accommodate all these increased numbers of people who might move in? And I think those listeners are right. That is a legitimate consideration. Yeah, and, and then you could throw in parking into that as well in some of these neighborhoods uh, if you allow suites in every every home in every community. So there, there's lots of challenges there, practical challenges, when it comes to moving the dial on, on housing. But I can tell you one thing. We always love having you on the show because you always provide great insight. Thank you so much for your time today, Michael. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. As of today, businesses will no longer be required to charge 25 cents for single-use cups, uh, which is uh, uh, an amazing, amazing thing if you're running a small business because i got to tell you, the amount of calls and complaints we got from business owners, never mind consumers who are paying it, there's a tremendous amount of frustration that not only do they have to charge for 25, the 25 cents for single-use cups, uh, report the number of single-use cups when renewing business licenses and all of that, uh, well, today they don't. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the 25 cent cup fee, but also the the bag fee uh, that we are still expected to pay. Ian Tossinson is the president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Jazz. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Your thoughts on this? Must be a great day for a lot of of uh, well, small business owners. Yeah, anytime you put, I mean, this is the oddest uh, 25 cent fee ever because you know we collected it and then we kept it. And people go, it was a, it's you know, it's a windfall. But 
there is there are costs associated with that um, through um, Recycle BC. The, the, those businesses have other fees they have to pay. So it wasn't like it was a land uh, or um, you know they were making a lot of money. But it just the public the optics were kind of weird. Like what are you guys doing this money? And then of course it was all the signage and and explanations and you know we have a fair amount of uh, change staff wise in this industry. So you constantly have to remind people this is how we do it. Blah blah blah. So it's gone. And, um, you know, the 25 cents is gone. And, and I think it's a good thing because anytime you put, you know, something of an obstacle, especially now between ourselves and our guests, um, it, it creates that, that friction. Um, 25 cents could be, in some cases, you know, 8 9% of the cost of, this, of the item itself. So it, it, was, it was quite hefty when you think about it. My, now, the other thing is a lot of people just, were habitual and just went in and got their coffee and probably didn't even realize they're paying, paying it. But the ultimately, uh, Jazz, it wasn't doing what we, we wanted to do, is we want to divert all these cups from the landfills. And that, that, that chapter is yet to be figured out by the city. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 people, I think, went and paid it. It annoyed them. They weren't happy with it, but it didn't ch- uh, change behavior, most importantly. Uh, on that note, now the bag, the bag issue is still there. Where uh, you yeah. will be charged money for for a bag? Uh, do you think that should go, or do you think people are changing their behavior in regards to um, uh, when they when they go and and to the grocery store, wherever it may be? Do you think that should stay? Well, like you, mm-hmm. uh, you probably have about a thousand dollars worth of bags at your house that you paid, <laughs> yeah. you paid twenty five. You know, you, you you go, oh no, I don't need any more of those, and you buy a two dollar bag. I don't know that that. Um, I think there's a little bit more flex there because, you know, if you really think about it, stuff a couple of bags in your car or, or you know, where, wherever you are. And I try to do that myself personally. Mm-hmm. And it works out quite well, actually. But you, but, but still, more than ever, I'm still having to pay the deposit, which is 25 cents on a paper bag mm-hmm. or $2 on a recyclable bag. And, uh, you know, I think it's more in the communication um, there's a uh, drugstore chain that you can't get bags anymore. And I'm in, in, I went in North Vancouver the other day, and it said we don't supply bags anymore. That's that's actually pretty harsh, but it sort of makes you think. I better bring some bags next time. I can't be carrying all this stuff out of my pockets. I'm a shoplifter. So I think that one's got some some. We we as a consumer can control that a lot easier than a coffee cup. You know, and and where they were trying to encourage people to reuse coffee cups, and you know, and we still say that's a great idea. You know, if your if your if your local coffee place will accept one of your cups and fill it, that's great. But most people aren't carrying cups around. Um, you know, it's still that's still a very awkward process. No, I think you raise a very good point in regards to the bags themselves. We just are going to have to get used to having tote bags with us at all times and using them and reusing them because the federal ban, I think, came in in December of 2022. Yes. In regards to the import of these bags or manufacture any of that thing. And I think there's supposed to be um, potentially even a provincial ban this spring uh, as well. So it's all headed in that direction. But I think at least people can... I think people understand that that's not right for the environment. It is frustrating when you go to a takeout or whatever it may be, and they ask you if you don't want to pay extra for the bag. But that's sort of the reality. And that I, it seems to be working. And maybe it's not efficient, but I think maybe that's where the public ha- will give you a bit of leeway there in regards to keeping that there. It's frustrating, but that one appears to be kind of working. Yeah, and I, you know, exactly. And I think that we as a business, whether it's retail or 
or restaurants, um, we need to communicate a bit more about like, where's all this money going? Like all these bags and I think it's, it almost sounds like a business unto itself in these businesses. So I think we need to communicate to our customers. This is what we're doing the 25 cents. And this is, you know, we are doing something in the back end of our business that's actually making a contribution. So it's not only jazz who just paid 25 cents to get a bag, but jazz knows that 25 cents made an investment to something more than just him having the utility of getting a bag that the business is doing something as well too. So I think when we do that, then I think it's going to help. But it was the same thing with the, with the 25 cent cup fee. Had there been a program in place by saying, you know what, we know we charge you 25 cents, but guess what? In two years, you know, we're going to eliminate 80 million cups uh, into the landfills. People go, yay, we'll get behind that kind of stuff because we're good at that. But that's where there's, all these things are lacking is that there's so much of it out there too. You compostable bags and, and uh, biodegradable bags. Like it's, it's kind of a confusing science when people are busy, they're worrying about things and all of a sudden they go, excuse me, but we pay me 25 cents for a bag and you sort of go, why? Yeah. So we, we've got to educate more. That's, that's the key here. And I think, I think, the mayor in Vancouver, he, he ter- certainly gets that, and we'll try to find some simple programs to engage people. I mean, I said to the city, why don't we just, you know, have hundreds of, of uh, garbage cans and a sign saying, you know, we'll do this for the city. I think you'd get a lot of people engaged in that, but we don't do that yet. So we've got to get some, have, put some fun into these kind of things. You do, and, and I think it, partially it has to be driven by the region to connect everybody rather than, you know, a patchwork of different types of of rules for Vancouver, something different in Richmond, something's different in Port Moody, and that's part of the challenge as well. I think even in, in like Squamish, yeah. um, there's a 70, 75 cents for, for, for I think for paper bags and two seventy five they charge for totes. So every city's different, but it's it is frustrating for consumers that way. But it, if we can get to that point, like you say, where you get everybody engaged and involved, and sort of a blanket policy that is relatively fair throughout the region, I think people would buy into it. That's for sure. Ian, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Ian, thank you so much for your time. Okay, Jazz, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.